up, everybody? This is Tyler. This is Danny. And this is episode 101 of Fried Squirms. Next week, we will be getting back to the conclusion of... We never came up with what I was going to actually call it, huh? (laughs) So, it's Tester Fright. Fuck it. Tester Fright, I love the name, even if we're not testing their fright, and more if they can handle gore, but... (laughs) <laughs> for the most okay. part, yeah. I love the name Tester Fright. We'll have the conclusion of the Tester Fright challenge. Nice, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It was a lot of fun last week. God damn it, they did a lot better than I hoped they were going to. Likewise, I kind of mentioned this to a few people throughout the week. I feel like had we watched those films with them individually, I feel like they probably would have tapped out. But because I think they have that competitive nature in them, and they knew <laughs> that we were watching it with them too. I feel like they were probably more willing to sit through it. But, I mean, regardless, I was impressed. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with the next film. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about our observations and ideas on what's gone on in the beginning of the next episode. But much like how we started off after episode 50 with going back to the classics, we're doing the same for you today. We haven't covered any Hitchcock yet. No, we haven't. So we decided to go back and do the birds. Yeah, dude, I'm glad we did. While you have the dirty bird on your head. (laughs) It's true. I'm all about the birds today, dude. Bird's the word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I'm excited. Do you have any news first? I don't really have anything from this week. I was a lazy ass. A couple things. So over the weekend, I did receive a film last week. You know, as we're wrapping up the first little bit of our tester fright. But anyhow, I got a movie called Starry Eyes. It's from the directors who are doing the upcoming Pet Cemetery. So I watched that film over the weekend. Don't want to say a whole lot quite yet, because that might be one worth us reviewing. But yeah, I checked that out. Last night, I watched the new season of True Detective. It's really oh, good, yeah. dude. Is it good? Yeah, so far so good. Steven Dorff does a really good job. The lead actor, I'll probably butcher his name. Mahershala Ali. Yeah, he does a really fucking good job. That's yeah. I forgot that he was going to be in it, and I saw a advert for it just yesterday. Yeah. And when I was like, oh shit, fucking Cottonmouth's in this? I'm all about it, It's son. fucking good, dude. So That's the way to pull me back in, True Detective. Well, there's two people that are in the fir- at least the first episode, I think part of the second episode, but Carmody Jogo, and I wish I could remember this kid's name, but he was in the first, well, hold on, let me rephrase that. He was in The Purge, the first movie in the series. Oh, okay. He wasn't in The First Purge. Exactly. He is the leader of that group that visits Ethan Hawke's family throughout the oh, night. Oh, shit. Okay. So he's in it. Carmine Jogo oh, okay. is the mother. I liked him. I thought yeah, he did he's a, really good. I thought he did a fantastic job in The Purge. So Totally agree. I was like, yes, I recognize him. I know who that is. And then Carmine Jogo, she is in it. She was in The Purge Anarchy with his second film. Checked that out last night, watched some football. Actually, dude, I found a torrent of Beavis and Butthead that actually has the music videos in them. Uh, I was like, yes. So I've been. So you got down on some Beavis and Butthead? I got a little bit. A little bit. I was revisiting my teenage years. Watched some Beavis and Butthead, I'm guessing. (laughs) Yeah, I was doing a little bit of making sure that they were in MP4 format. So I've been kind of doing that over the weekend, too. But that's kind of just the personal shit I've been up to. Other than that, just kind of hanging out. But. I don't know, I just sat around playing video games, so I, go. I ain't got nothing. Nice. Um, well, I've got a couple of bits of horror news. Okay, what do you got? a little bit more pertinent. So the first thing I'll mention is, we've mentioned it a couple of times on the show. We haven't reviewed it, but we've mentioned it. But A Quiet Place just won Best Horror slash Sci-Fi Movie last night at the Critics' Choice Awards. So typically what that means, it seems like 
last year with Jordan Peele's Get Out, which we have covered. Mm -hmm. It was nominated and it won in the same category. And then it went on to get nominated for Best Motion Picture, Best Leading Actor, and Best Directing at the Academy Awards last year. So there's a possibility that because of this win last night for A Quiet Place, it might get the same treatment. But some of the films that it was stacked up against in that category were Annihilation, Halloween, which you and I have seen yep. and talked about, Hereditary, and Suspiria. So oh, wow. quite a few films we're familiar with. Hereditary I'm going to Man. be familiar with soon. Exactly. Uh-huh. I don't want to say too much, but A Quiet Place wasn't bad. I mean, it's not a bad film, but against that competition, sorry, man, that wouldn't have been my choice. Yeah. Some of those films I haven't seen yet, like I just said, Hereditary, yeah. which I keep hearing rave reviews about, and I expect would probably end up being my favorite as well. Maybe not out of that list. You said Suspiria was on that list, yeah, right? Yeah, sure was. It's going to be hard for Hereditary to top Suspiria. Yeah, at there's. This point. I like. I don't want to say anything quite yet until you watch that film. So, I'll it's going reserve. to be hard so far. But I mean, if it does it, I'll be happy. But the one thing I I can say I haven't seen The Quiet Place yet, but it did sort of capture like a really broad market. Even Dylan from the Test Your Fright yeah. competition got down on it in theaters. That's pretty and cool. And really dug it. And so. I think that's probably part of the appeal too is that it was geared accessible. more towards yeah, it was accessible. It was geared more towards general audience, whereas some of these other films are a little bit more genre films, per se. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's probably why. And you also have John Krasinski and Emily Blunt. And Jim. Yeah, exactly. They're a little easy on the eyes. People are familiar with them for obvious reasons. So that's no offense to the movie itself, but, eh, you know, wasn't my favorite last year. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. All right, so another thing that I had seen, which I actually grew up with, I'm pretty sure you did as well, but apparently there's a new draft of the live-action Masters of the Universe in the works. Oh, dope. Okay. I know that they've been working on that for a bit, so. Yeah, so there's two brothers, Adam and Aaron Nee. They help with a band of robbers. It looks like they've been hired to direct. This is David S. Goyer's script. And they're actually rewriting it. So this will be interesting, oh, man. Okay. I grew up watching the television series, had the action figures, actually went and seen the Dolph Lundgren <laughs> live action nice. film when it came out in the theaters when I was little. That was one of the first movies I actually remember seeing in the theater that my dad took us to. It wasn't the first one in the theater I went to, but I was like, man. Yeah, hey, now's be... the right time for it. If you can pull it off, throw yeah, a I bitch mean, and synth wave behind it. That's when it. There's a big resurgence of 80s films and nostalgia. This would be a perfect one to test out that mm-hmm. so we'll see what happens but another film that i'm pretty sure in the 90s you've seen i did too but it looks like there are plans by new Line cinema to have a final destination reboot whoa yeah okay like i dug the first one yeah i, I thought i thought shit in I, I mean at least one of the kills in every single one of them was like clever and had me chuckle because of yeah. how inventive it was but they did go downhill in quality pretty steeply after yeah, that first Yeah, they are no exception to the rule when it comes to like sequels, multiple sequels. They don't progressively get better. Especially in that time period. Yeah. Well, actually, the first one came out in 2000, but still from the 90s. But yeah, we've talked about Devin Sawaga because of Idle mm-hmm. Hands. He was in the first one. There's a lot of familiar faces the more you get into them. Hey, I, I still get creeped out when driving behind a truck carrying Oof. a load of lumber. Yeah, that's another one of those kind of social memes before it was a meme. Like, yeah, if you and saw there's lots truck, of rigs out here hauling lumber. Yeah, it's like, I'll make sure if I'm on a four-lane highway, I'll get over. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> I've seen what happens. All right, now, another person we've covered for several reasons, several movies, but 
There is a first look at Kane Hodder's next horror film, and it is called Knife Corp. And this film deals with a high school senior, Wally Banks. He's selling knives door to door, and he gets trapped in a man's house with a dark secret and must escape before it's too late. And naturally, Hodder is playing the man with a dark secret, and that character's name is Angus Finn. Now, Felissa Rose, because we've covered Sleepaway Camp, she has a role in this film. Oh, okay. So, yeah, be two people we're familiar with. I don't know much more outside of that. I have a feeling it's probably low-budget film, so don't expect too much. Yeah, we'll see if I actually end up checking it out or not. Uh, if, you know, if it's on somewhere, I might check it out. We'll see what happens. <laughs> now, this is a film we have covered once again, but Ridley Scott's Alien is getting a 40th anniversary 4K Ultra high-definition release in the UK. So on April 1st, 2019, that is coming out. Like I said, it's to celebrate the 40th year Jesus. of Alien. And there is some interesting, I guess, news, I suppose, or coincidence. There's an actress in that film that we're actually going to be talking about today. That's right. Yeah, so it's Yay. really cool. Yeah, so some other news I've got is Sony is finally releasing Fright Night on Blu-ray here in the States. And it is including the three-and-a-half-hour documentary. Now, I bought a copy of it a couple months ago. The Blu-ray is region-free. It was by Eureka Entertainment, and I think it was a part of like the Twilight series they did. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't get it, man, it's like you kind of missed out. And it's fetching big bucks, but I'm glad to see that Sony is finally releasing it. Like, I grew up watching it, love that movie. So for fans who don't have a Blu-ray copy of it, check it out. All right, I've got two more bits of news. UK distributor Second Sight is teasing that they're bringing Dawn of the Dead back to Blu-ray. Now, it did okay. have like a limited run on Blu-ray here in the States. Once again, it went out of stock. Good luck finding a copy that's not more than like 100 bucks. I've been looking. I was like, God, fuck that. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be cool Which if they do I, decide to do it. I know we mentioned it a bunch last week, but I can't wait for more news on the fucking Dead Alive 4K. Oh, man, I know, dude. This might be a good year to start getting into film collecting. <laughs> All right, and the last bit of news I have, and it does involve Scream Factory slash Shout Factory, which I know we're fans of, but oh, yeah. they are releasing four classic Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff horror films. And those films are The Black Cat and The Raven, that's the 1935 version, The Invisible Ray, and Black Friday. And this is going to be in a four-disc set with a slipcover in new art. I don't see a release date quite yet for this, but once it comes out, it's going to be pretty dope if you're fans of either one of those iconic Universal actors. I'd say this will be a nice one to have in your collection. So. I'm taking a look at it right now. As soon as you started saying it, I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, it's like, it's pretty dope, man. And all those films are set either in the 1930s, one's in the 1940s. So it's going to be pretty dope, man. Like I said, it's really oh. cool seeing all these different distributors coming out with these films, man. It gives collectors like ourselves... You know what, that's dope. But another thing that they just announced as an upcoming release that I actually haven't seen the movie yet, but this box art is fucking dope on this Green Inferno collector. Yeah, edition. I did see that. Eli Roth's. So, man, you get an exclusive poster, I see there. Typically with Shell Factory, man, there's, they're Dude, chock full of a, special features. Dude, that's some cool fucking artwork. The box arts are always good, man. Well, that's one that, thing that's I do some, like about That's like Shout something Factory. I would expect from Arrow right there, though. Yeah. Well, they both have their, yeah. their unique styles. I like them, though. But, yeah, they got some good films coming up. I think some 80s films coming out that mm -hmm. haven't had a proper release and stuff like that. So, 
But yeah, outside of that, man, that's pretty much what I've got as far anyway, as sport news, personal news. I need to close this right now, or else I'm just going to start oh, man, shopping it's instead so of so easy to do. <laughs> that's why I have to limit myself on those sites, dude. I'll just be like, oh shit, maybe I should own this, even though I'm trying to cut down on the amount of like actual physical. Like it's only the real, the ones that I really, really want to have that I want to pick up these days because it's so much easier to just go digital. And I know what you mean, but man, for me, it's just, I'm that old school. I like that tangible. I do like that, but I'm just trying to hold myself to only certain things. And what's like George Carlin said, man, he said a house or in our case, apartments, they're just a place to keep your shit. Yeah. The more shit you get, the bigger the space you need. Yeah, then I start getting on websites like that where I'm like, ooh, look at all the pretty art that comes with it. Oh, God. So tempting, but that's the fun of it, man. Yeah, dude, I'm excited about today to talk about Avril Hitchcock's The Birds, somebody we want to talk about for a while now, so yeah. Right, let's get to it. Into The Birds. This is going to be a birdemic. Guts and Bolts. So, Danny, here in the Guts and Bolts section, we're going to quickly go over the people that went into the making of this movie in front of and behind the camera, and we're going to try to stay spoiler-free. Yes, we are. That's actually less for you and more for any new listeners. (laughs) Exactly. But, yeah, this is the section where we try to entice you with some of these people that you may be aware of, you may not be aware of. We give you a synopsis, we give you some spoiler-free little information here and there, and then at the end, we give you some warnings, just in case. That's right. It's also where we tell you that we have been smoking on a mixture of Sour Diesel and Jack Herrera, and it's going to be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) It's always interesting, dude. I love it. Yeah, today I'm not sure. I still have like a blend of, it's probably Cinex and some kind of OG skunk or haze of some sort. Yeah, yeah. So let's see. The birds. A synopsis? Yeah, let's start with a synopsis. Let me think. A good synopsis for the birds would be a delightful romantic comedy turns to terror when a bunch of avians descend on a town. <laughs> That's as simple as it gets, but straight into the point. Yeah, so this film came out in 1963. That's the year my mom was born. Oh. So it's kind of cool. It's another one of those films that just so happened to be the same year that my mom was born. The Raven being the other one, so it's kind of cool. The Raven and the Birds both came out the same year? Yeah. Didn't even realize that. It's pretty neat, isn't it? Yeah. It's really funny. <laughs> yeah, we just got in talking about Boris Karloff a little bit, so it's kind of another neat little coincidence here. But I guess leading off, we can talk about the crew, the people who went into making the film. And we did mention that this is an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Our first time actually getting to review a Hitchcock film, but you and I are no strangers, and I'm sure for several different reasons. This is the main reason for me, to be honest. I mean, Hitchcock's super famous as one of the masters at thriller and suspense and different kinds of horror, especially if you look at contemporary reviews of some of these movies, where it's obviously were very much regarded yeah, as no doubt. horrific some of the time. 
I mean, I grew up watching Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Likewise. When I was super young, and I hardly actually remember any of it. I can't tell you any of the fucking episodes. You and I actually just recently rewatched like the opening. Oh yeah, for it. That's what I remember more than anything. Yeah, is the drawing the of his yeah. silhouette and him walking into it. Yeah, with the funeral march and the marionette. What I like it. too is like some of the things that I do remember, not necessarily episodes, but how we always had like a way of explaining the story through this weird dark macabre humor, mm-hmm. and it always had like little props and stuff that what maybe pertain to that particular episode yeah but that's one i grew up with in the 80s because of nick at night they would show all those old shows back then and i had an uncle that liked watching those shows and at that time we didn't really have much of an option so if he was watching whatever we were watching whatever but i'm glad and thankful that this was one of those whatevers right before we move into the movie, especially because a couple of these things don't actually apply to this movie, but they do apply to his movies as a whole. He's had an indelible mark on pop culture, on movies you've watched, through his style, through just terms that he's introduced to the medium. As far as style goes, I think it's called a push zoom. He's the one that basically invented it for his movie Vertigo. And basically it's when you have a camera on a dolly and you're physically pulling the camera away while zooming in at the same time to keep the head at the same zoom level, but it changes the way the background focuses behind it. The scene I always think of is in Jaws when Chief Brody realizes the first attack's going down while he's sitting on the beach and the way that it zooms in on his face and does it, yeah. that's the effect. It's for Brody. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, the effect. That's pretty cool, yeah. So you're right. It does show like how much of an impact he's had on other directors throughout the times. I think he came up with the term of the MacGuffin, which cool. is a writing term. And a MacGuffin is a motivating element in the story that is used to drive the plot and nothing else. It doesn't actually have anything else to do with the story. But people in the story want it, and that's why the plot moves forward. An example would be the Maltese Falcon, or the Philosopher's Stone, and Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. It's never actually used. It has two abilities to explain why people want it. It doesn't contribute anything to the actual story. The identity of Rosebud in Citizen Kane only drives the plot forward. It doesn't actually matter. doesn't actually affect anything in the story. The car in Dude, Where's My Car? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We're no strangers. (laughs) I think you guys understand what I'm getting at. I was trying to find some really obvious examples. Those are all MacGuffins. He's the one that pretty much came up with the term. It's pretty neat. It's still used to this day. And I also follow TV Tropes, the website, tvtropes.org. I've fallen into many, just a (laughs) rabbit hole of going through tons and tons of their articles And he pretty much popularized a term that they use a variation of to this day when he was talking about the movie Vertigo, actually, which we'll probably actually have to come back to Hitchcock and do Vertigo at some point. Yeah, exactly. I've never actually seen all of it, so that's another reason why I'd like to do that. I've only seen clips. But what's now known as fridge logic, he referred to as icebox logic. And it's the sort of little inconsistencies in movies that you don't notice till later on. A lot of the time, let me think, there'd be... When he talked about icebox logic, there's a scene 
where Madeline mysteriously and impossibly disappears from the hotel that Scotty saw her in. And he responded by calling it an icebox scene. And it's a scene that doesn't hit you till you've gone home and you've started pulling the cold chicken out of the icebox. It's something that didn't really matter to the movie, but it is weird and shouldn't have been able to happen. But everything seemed to still flow right, and it doesn't hit you till later on yeah, like that, that that shouldn't that have that. happened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just that the term was icebox because huh. it was olden days, and so now yeah, it's known box, as fridge, fridge logic. Exactly. But. So it shows you his impact, like you were saying, just in whether it's cinematic terms, pop culture, etc., and it's used as a plot device for some directors, writers. I think that might be all the good things I have to say about Hitchcock. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we both know why. I guess we can reserve that maybe for a little bit later on. But some of the things I wanted to mention, of course, is his titles of the films that he helped direct. And we've already mentioned the fact that you and I grew up watching like his Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Now, he goes back a bit because he worked in silent film and he actually worked on some of the first talkies in England. So you can go back all the way to the 20s. Not that you wouldn't know any of those films. He didn't really start getting prominent until actually starting in the 40s with the film Rebecca, which is based off of the person who we'll talk about was a writer of a novella for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with that, he also did such things as Shadow of a Doubt, the movie Spellbound, Notorious, the film Rope, Strangers on the Train, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window. I mean, there's so many. Lifeboat. Yeah, so many that I grew up watching. I mean, the huge one, we haven't really talked about it yet, was Psycho from 1960. Leading all the way up to films like Marnie, he worked with Sean Connery. He was known for working with Grace Kelly before the actress we'll mention today. So he was known for working with some pretty prominent figures in Hollywood. And because of these films, we talked about, just more recently, it's something I can think of as Bates Motel series. And that was great, man. <laughs> you know, so from Psycho, you're spawning this stuff that's so prevalent today. Yeah, this is definitely a person I'm glad we're talking about today. But without going too far away from him, the person I wanted to mention that helped write the story is actually Daphne du Maurier. He actually adapted her other story, Rebecca. So he's not unfamiliar with her works. This was written as a screenplay by Evan Hunter. And Evan has worked on such things as Blackboard Jungle, Cop Hater, Strangers When We Meet. He was also known for his series of 87th Precinct novels that were later adapted into a television series from 1961 through 62. He also helped write for High and Low, the film Fuzz, Walk Proud, and the television series The Chisholms from 1979 through 1980. The cinematographer on this was Robert Burks, and Robert Burks was somebody who actually worked with Hitchcock several times. Now, some of those films I've already mentioned before, but we can start taking a look at such things as Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, The Man Who Knew Too Much. He was also responsible for being the DP on The Spirit of St. Louis, the film Vertigo, North by Northwest, The Birds Today, of course, Marnie, (laughs) and Once a Thief. So some pretty interesting films. Now, along with him, our editor on this is George Tomasini. He was another person who worked with Hitchcock a lot for such films. And he goes way back, too. But he worked on Stalag 17, the film Houdini, Rear Window, Vertigo, The Time Machine, which is a really cool film. I really love the novel. (laughs) North by Northwest, The Misfits, the original Cape Fear from the 60s, which is really cool. Yeah. And he also worked on Marnie, so a couple of, like I said, Hitchcock films here and there. 
The sound department's pretty interesting because it's a very minimalist soundtrack. But the person I did want to talk about, not necessarily in full, but I believe we've mentioned him a few times, but the sound consultant on this was Bernard Herman. And that was pretty neat. It's like, that's a pretty big name when you start looking at a lot of his titles throughout cinema and whatnot. Not that I necessarily have to go into all of those, but that was pretty cool. The special effects on this was done by Larry Hampton. He did such things as Soldier in the Rain, Painter Wagon, Suppose They Gave a War and Nobody Came. And the other person, too, was responsible. This is a little bit more on the trivia side, so I'll talk about that a little bit later, but... Ub Everks, he helped with a lot of the visual effects in this because of a special technique that they used for this film. And he was known for working on Disney films way back when, and they used a certain technology that was incorporated in this film. So I did want to mention him. All right, now this film was produced by Alfred Hitchcock. He was also the production company head for his Alfred J. Hitchcock Productions who helped with producing this film. The distributors for this were Universal Pictures. They helped with the 1963 USA theatrical release, and Rank Film Distributors helped with the 1963 United Kingdom theatrical release. It was released here in the States, in New York, New York, on March 28th, and then stateside on the 29th of 1963. May 9th, 1963, it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in France, and it had its premiere on September 10th in London, and then September 12th, 1963, throughout the rest of the United Kingdom. The budget for this was an estimated $2.5 to $3.5 million, and it grossed here in the States $11.4 million. I would be curious what that inflation would be for today's yeah. <laughs> numbers. All right, so I've got several different taglines. I wrote down three, so I'll go ahead and give them to you. Yeah, let's hear these All right, so the first one is... Suspense and shock beyond anything you have ever seen or imagined. Okay. <laughs> All right. Number two, nothing you have ever witnessed before has prepared you for such sheer stabbing shock. A little alliteration there at the end. Okay. All right. And number three, has the ellipsis. And remember, the next scream you hear could be your own. I hate some old-timey taglines when they are nothing about the movie. They're so other cliche. Than just, yeah. <laughs> Oh, my God. They're kind of derivative of each other. I mean, not that I know what I would put right off the top yeah. of my head, but, oh, fuck. I was hoping at least one of them would actually have something to do. Pertains to the actual movie. Stabbing is the closest. Yeah. Because of stabbing beaks, I guess. But... <laughs> yeah, that's about it. But So that's pretty much who I have for the crew. We can get into talking about the cast because it's a very interesting cast. Now, the lead actor I have is an Australian actor, and this was Rod Taylor. He plays the character of Mitch Ponger. <laughs> yeah. He's got some really interesting titles that he's worked on, man. I've seen actually a couple of his films. I've seen one of them many times. I did too. I grew up watching it back in the VHS era in the 80s. As soon as I saw his name, I'm like, why the fuck... Why do I know that name so well? And it's because Rod Taylor was Pongo. Yeah, and in 101 Dalmatians. Yeah, and that's from 1961, not the the Glenn Close one. Oh yeah, yeah, not the Glenn Close one. Yes. Oh, the old school. Yeah, one, exactly. So. But I was like, damn, that's pretty dope. Now he was also in a film that starred Elizabeth Taylor and James Dean, but that film was Giant. I've actually seen it. It's a kind of a long epic film. It's really good though. I went through a little bit of a James Dean kick. In like mid 2000s, like so when I was getting to film collecting. Now, he was also 
and The Time Machine, the film I'd mentioned earlier. He was also in Walker, Texas Ranger, the television series from 1996 through 2000. I think it was just for a few episodes. And he was also, more recently, in Inglorious Bastards. He was Winston Churchill. Yeah. Now, it took a little convincing from Eli Roth for him to play that part. He actually recommended a different actor. I wish I could remember who it was, but he's like, nah, maybe you want him because he played a really good Winston Churchill but Roth talked him into it. So I, was like, nice. I know that he's one of those guys that way back in the day turned down Bond. Yeah, I know, right? What the fuck? Little did they know. Yeah, no shit. No kidding. So I thought that was really cool. That's some of the credits I have for Rod. Now, the actress, who is the lead actress in this, very interesting person. This is Tippi Hedren. She plays the character of Melanie Daniels. Now, some of her film credits include another Hitchcock film, Marnie, which came out the following year, 1964. She was a part of Tales from the Dark Side television series in 1984. She was also in the sequel to this film, and that was The Birds 2, Land's End. She doesn't reprise her role, though, as Melanie, which is interesting. Now, she was also on a television series I probably shouldn't have been watching, <laughs> but she was on the television series Dream On from 1994 through 1996, and she was also in a Wes Anderson film, I Heart Huckabees. I want to point out possibly the most interesting thing she's ever been in, an exploitation movie by the name of Roar. Roar? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because, and I'll talk about that in, like, in the trivia part, but... Was that like a 1980, was it 81 film, I think? I read it, maybe 70s, but I read... 81, a, okay, 81. Yeah, I read something about that. She was married to Noel Marshall at yeah, the time. Yeah, uh, And her daughter's Melanie Griffith. Yeah, that's like part of the trivia I wanted to say, but you're right, her daughter is... Because cause she's in Roar. Yeah, exactly. And they, through the 70s, like lived with a lion in their house. Yep. But then this exploitation movie was made where I don't think they lived with as many lions as are in this movie. I think there was things that really were their real life mixed in with other shit yeah, set up. For sure. The cinematographer on that, by the way, was Jan de Bont, who is known for like speed and <laughs> <Yeah>. twister. <laughs> That's fucking funny. But who I believe has also done just some horse shit. Oh, he's also a cinematographer on like Cujo and Die Hard. That's pretty dope. But like when he gets his turn as director is when his career started to go towards like speed two because he was also speed two. <laughs> yeah. Whoops. <laughs> but yeah, all sorts of like, I don't think any of the animals got hurt on set, but over 70 members of the cast and crew ended up getting mauled over the time of the production. And I think Jan DeBont himself actually ended up having to get like over 200 stitches or something Jesus fucking insane like that. <laughs> like It's nuts, man. I know a little interesting anecdote that goes along with that story as well. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, even with her second husband, I think it was Noel Marshall. Yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff I'll talk about there. But now there's another actress in this I do want to mention, of course. Pretty big actress for a film that came out much later in her career. But the actress I'm talking about today is Jessica Tandy. She plays the character of Lydia Brenner, who is the mother of Rod Taylor's character, mm -hmm. Ned Brenner. Yeah. Now, she was a part of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, the television series from 1956 through 1958 for a few episodes. She's also in such films as The World According to Garp, 
which is a Robin Williams film. It's a really great film. She was also in the films Still of the Night. Some movies I watch as a kid, so don't judge me too harshly, but she was in Cocoon and also the sequel. When I was looking through her filmography, I was like, I'm pretty sure the only thing I really know her from is Cocoon. I know. I was like, that's (laughs) not really a kid's movie either. No. (laughs) It's good, but it's not geared towards children. She was also in a film entitled Batteries Not Included. Another one I've seen. Yeah, okay. Batteries Not Included. Now, the film I was talking about, that actually, I think she won some like some major awards for it because Morgan Freeman's also in it, but she is Miss Daisy in Driving Miss Daisy. She was Which also I've seen clips of. I've never actually watched. Uh, the my movie. grandmother, like I said, she liked a lot of these dramas, so there's a lot of times I watch these films with her. I she guess was, I would have seen a little bit of Fried Green Tomatoes. Yeah, so she was too. also in Fried Green Tomatoes, and she was also in the film Nobody's Fool. The next actress I have is a really interesting person as well. This is Suzanne Plachette. She plays the character of Annie Hayworth in this film. Now, she's been in such things as, if it's Tuesday, this must be Belgium. Fortunately, today is Monday. Missoula. <laughs> she was also in A Long Came a Spider. That's the 1970s version. She was a part of the Bob Newhart show. It's because she played his wife on that show. <laughs> Lion King 2, Simba's Pride. Yeah, she voiced the character of Zira. Now, if you've ever seen, there's two of these versions, but it's Oh God. I was going to, actually, I would have seen her in Oh God book two. Yeah. Growing up. Because I really liked those first two. And she voiced a really popular Miyazaka film. Oh yeah, she was in Spirited Away. And she voiced the characters of Yubara and Zaniba. And that's, of course, the English version. But it's like, it's pretty cool. Now, I mentioned a little earlier because of Alien that we have mentioned an actress before. And today we're talking about Veronica Cartwright. She's super young in this film, but she plays the character of Kathy Brenner, which is Mitch Brenner's little sister and Lydia's daughter. Now, I can't remember the name of her character in Alien, but she was in it. And we've also talked about her a little bit because she was in Scary Movie Part 2 and she's spoofing The Exorcist. Mm. yeah oh yeah yeah (laughs) that's like yeah so we mentioned her a little bit so if you want to get a little bit more in depth with some of her acting credits you can check out our alien episode we talk a little bit about more of her credits in depth on that episode and i do think before we move way too far away from tippy to be fair to her i do believe after everything was said and done with roar they set up a foundation to take care of all those cats yeah i was gonna say she got really involved in like animal rescue efforts and i think that's and i know that she regrets how unsafe they were doing that in like the 70s and just their life living with the, yeah, a yeah. lion in their house. But she also feels that a lot of the re-releases of Roar and like behind the scenes looking at it and stuff are filled with a bit of inaccuracies that sort of portray them as being a little bit crazier than she feels like well, they were. I was an exploitation <laughs> No puns, right? So... She hasn't really been involved in too much of it past that initial bit, but... Yeah, it's understandable. No, there are a chock full of other actors and actresses in this film. I didn't really give them credit. These are more or less your main players in this film. Everybody else is kind of a bit player. Mm-hmm. There is somebody that I did look up because I was curious, and this is Carl Swenson. He plays the drunken, like the prophet oh, in the yeah. diner. The reason why I wanted to talk about him is because another film that I grew up watching, I'm sure you've seen it several times too, but he voiced Merlin in... He was Merlin? Yeah, dude. Whoa. I was like, what the fuck? Are you serious? 
Yeah, because I just I was curious to see what other so Pongo and Merlin are in this movie. Yeah, it's like isn't that wild, dude? I don't know what to say right now. I fucking I loved Sword in the Stone way more than I liked 101 Dalmatians growing up. Well, likewise, man. That's a classic child's movie, especially like I said with some of those Disney films coming out in that time period too. They were just knocking them out of the ballpark. But yeah, I was like, are you serious right now? <laughs> there, like I said, there's a lot of other people who've got some really interesting credits, but most of those credits come probably from our great grandparents' <laughs> generation. So I wouldn't expect a lot of people to know them. I mean, we've mentioned it before, too, and I think it's really weird, especially because now working with a lot of young kids. Oh, not man. like young kids, but, but like a lot like yeah. a lot of the people we work with are in like the 18 to 22 range. Yeah, so it's like the generation that comes up right behind us. It's making it really apparent some of the differences. And even you're a little bit older than me, but some of the we, were still, we were still in the same time frame yeah. where it was possible to watch everything that was on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You weren't too far removed from the equation at that point. And a lot of these stations still relied on a lot of the old reruns for at least a part of their programming. Yeah. And so we still grew up watching shit from the 50s and 60s. Yeah, because we were saying Because there was nothing else on TV. <laughs> That's, yeah, it was a, through proxy. There's a lot of shows I caught because of that fact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have enough time in the day anymore to watch everything that you want to that's going on all the time. At least not with like a normal job and limitations. Yeah. You can't keep up anymore. Whereas we didn't have any choice when we were growing up. Not only were we always caught up, but we also knew everything that happened for the past 30 years. At least, Because yeah. it was always on TV. That's to say that the kids today and the generations to follow will never know the struggle of not having some form of cable or internet where you can watch whatever you want to watch. It's like... You were stuck with whatever over-the-air cable station, or not in cable, just stations you were getting. So if you wanted to watch something, whether it sucked or not, you had no choice. It was what sucked less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, fuck. Do I go outside or do I stay in and watch this shit? Well, looks like we're watching them. You know you know what's funny in, in retrospect is like that was maybe I was a good like marketing thing to get kids outside because shit there was dick all on TV. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, I was outside so much more before there was everything good on TV. Yeah, I mean most of the stuff I watched was late at night anyway, so I was always outside playing. I know we're kinda of getting away from but yeah, this is kind of a product of what we're doing today of that. It's like these were one of the things that you would this have movie was then. made in 63, but yeah. two people in this movie were intimately a part of my childhood. Likewise. It's pretty gnarly, isn't it? Yeah. So I guess that's the point we're getting at. You don't have that sort of time frame jump exactly. on the regular anymore like you used to. Yeah, that's to. a good point. Because if we were to mention some, like, some of these people or titles or anything else, and that's no discredit, but probably by and large from a certain age group like they wouldn't get the references they wouldn't know what the hell we're talking about i do want to point out i did recognize richard deacon because i used to watch a lot of dick van dyke show at nick at night yeah i saw that he was a part of the show yeah yeah he was mel cooley so i did want to point that out too i was like what was his fucking name i I just no no, i said there's some really cool people in this film it's just you know how much people know about them when was dick van dyke show made but I grew up watching it every well, night. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's so much stuff growing up, man. It's like there's a, hardly anybody outside of our age group that would get it. Yeah, 
you know, going backwards, let's put it that way. <laughs> but all right, so we've talked about our cast and crew. We gave you synopsis. We gave you a few taglines. We should give you some warnings. Yeah. Hitchcock's the master of suspense. So this whole movie just gradually builds and builds and builds. Exactly. As far as actual stuff on screen, Not there's a whole lot. But I mean, there's stuff. one scene with pretty decent gore, especially. Yeah, given. For as mainstream I, as I know this what you're was. Talking about too. Yeah, so there's some. But it's really quick, like yeah. one second. There's some good explosions, stuff like that. But otherwise, it's kind of. It's pretty tame for the most yeah, part. Yeah, it's pretty tame. It's just the overall feeling. Exact. Just the building of the suspense and the thrill and all that good stuff. So, yeah, most of it's just atmospheric for the most part building in the plot i mean i guess unless you don't like birds yeah that, i mean that's the major thing i mean the title alone should give it away <laughs> mother if, if you don't i don't, like I don't know what that phobia would be avianophobia yeah but if you don't like birds this probably isn't the movie for you yeah because there's gonna be a whole lot of birds a shit ton of birds in this film <laughs> yeah but yeah i mean like so this is another one that's pretty tame in comparison but it has some good moments cool should we go into how it made a squeal yeah God, what's happening to me? God, where am I? Why am I hearing these things? Oh God, what, what's going on? Oh Jesus, come on. Oh my God, what's, what's going on? Where, where am I? Oh gee, why, why? Come on, somebody, somebody. Ah, come on, come on, come on. Come on, somebody. Sir. Come on, somebody, somebody's there. Somebody's gotta be there. I will shock you. Come on, sir. On, Sir, you must Come listen on, to me. Sir, I only have one question. How does that make you squeal? Squeal time, Danny. Oh, yes. Or is it squawk time? A little bit of both. Depending. <laughs> Some of that hitch squack. Yeah, baby. Alright, so we talked about the fact that this is Alfred Hitchcock. This is 1963. This is the next section of our show. So if you're new, yeah. now we're going to get into spoilers and what we actually thought and exactly so like that. We're anything the fuck we want to say about it. We're open books at this point. So if you ever seen the film, go ahead and do it and then come back to us. But yeah, I was going to ask with this because of our history with Hitchcock. Did you ever see this film prior I to have. us reviewing it? This is one of the few I, I didn't, so this is kind of my foray into the birds. It has been a while. I was trying to think of the last time I saw it, and the last time I saw it would have been in high school. But I have seen it, I'd say at least three times before this, even if it had been over a decade. Actually, people at home, you're listening to my voice, and so you can't see. Plus, I'm wearing long sleeves right now anyway, so you can't see. But I do have some raven tattoos running up my arm. I have... For a number of reasons, if I were to be honest about it, an attraction to sort of like ravens and blackbirds and dark birds. But part of that is because of this movie. That's cool. And some of the iconic scenes involving a shit ton of crows at about the midway point of the movie. But in a weird way, it's kind of a formative movie for me just because of that imagery and how it stuck with me. I do like those birds for other reasons as well, but that was one of the things really early on where I was like, oh my god, like something just cemented. I was like, that's dope. That's something I'm always, like I've always just latched onto ever since. So No, it's very impressionable. So no doubt, man. Now, there was a time period, I mean, outside of like a grown up watching the show and I think Psycho might be the one that I actually remember, like, my formal introduction. 
And then it wasn't until I was in my 20s where I was watching like Vertigo and Rebecca and stuff like that, Notorious, things like that. So I was getting a little bit more familiar with his bodies of work around that time period. Mm -hmm. But like I said, this was my formal introduction. And because I knew we were going to review it in that span we had in between our Christmas episode and us doing our episode last week. So I went ahead and picked up a Blu-ray copy of it. How was that, by the way? It's pretty good. You can I'm still sure tell... it looked better than... I just streamed it on Amazon. I rented it, so... Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah, there's some scenes you can tell where it's still kind of stuck in that time period, you know what I mean, as far as the mm -hmm. filming goes. But the transfer itself is not bad at all. I mean, it's it looks really good. Yeah, so it was nice to see that version of it and... Learned some interesting facts, of course, because of it. It's got some really cool special features, some interviews with some of the actors and the people who worked on the film itself, the writer himself. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. But I don't know. Do you want to just, like, kind of dive in? or? Well, I, I think my first note is actually kind of a neat little tie into what we were just talking about at the end of The Guts and Bolts and something I wasn't prepared for, even though I should have been, but caught me off guard. Didn't even think about the fact that this movie was old enough that we were going to get all the credits right at the front. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, it does. It's like, it hits you right with them. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, that's right. They used to do this all the time. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll just sit through the credits then. Which is funny because by the time this movie's <laughs> over, you're expecting them and you're like, oh, that was it? Where's the credits? Yeah, where where those? Go? Oh yeah, they were up at the front. That's yeah, right. that's right. I, you know what? I kind of don't mind that. I kind of get some out of the way. I just, I didn't even think about the fact that that was going to happen. Yeah, exactly. And it then I was funny. like, oh, okay, I'm going to sit here for a couple <laughs> minutes, and then I guess I'll start taking notes. I mean, it's not bad. It kind of gets you. I wonder if that's like a psychological thing too in those old older films. Like it kind of catches you off guard because you're still munching on popcorn and drinking your drink and shit. I don't mind it when they do it in both places, honestly. I, I just, mind. for whatever reason, when I sat down to watch it, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> they did used to do that. That's right. Yeah. Now, one thing I do kind of want to mention, I guess, to lead in to the film itself, is that little bit of an opening sequence. There's a couple of interesting tidbits about that. And it's the fact that Tippi Hedren, before she really got into acting, she was a model for different companies and stuff like that, advertisements. Hitchcock had seen her in an advertisement the year prior and, of course, met with her, gave her the part. She actually had like to do three different I guess, scenes from various movies that he had mm -hmm. directed prior to that. And so they gathered like this footage reel to see if she was even worth their time. But long story short, it's because of that commercial, the opening sequence, there's a kid that walks past her and whistles at her. That's right out of that advertisement. Hashtag me too, Tippy. <laughs> I know. Well, I'll talk about that in a little bit because of this film specifically. But another cool thing is as she's going into the pet store, out comes a guy walking two dogs. And this is where Alfred Hitchcock makes a cameo. Hitchcock, of course, famous for cameoing in every single one of his movies. Cameo. Always in a non-speaking role. And at least one time not actually showing up live, maybe twice. I think one time he's the narrator, and in Lifeboat, he's the before and after weight loss picture <laughs> on, like, a diet pamphlet or something. Well, good for him. Because, I mean, he was known <laughs> yeah. for being kind of a big guy, right? Yeah, he's poor. And there's actually, like, really funny stories about the fact, like, he wouldn't talk to actors like on set about what they were doing yeah he would just talk to them about restaurants and like what wines they liked and shit no that's interesting you say that because in part of those special features 
there's some of the people that talk about that. Like, he would not talk about his films or anything. Yeah, he would talk about food. Yeah, food and wine. (laughs) Mel Brooks tells a story about him where he had dinner with him. I can't remember all the contents of the dinner, but it was like big old steak and like whole plate of asparagus and like bowl of ice cream and like bowl of risotto or something. I don't remember, but you know, a good sized dinner, but he ate two of every one of those. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) Well, fuck it. I mean, but in between he would also had periods of his life where he really worked out quite a bit and he had some pretty big weight fluctuations so he was big during the time he made Lifeboat, but had been pretty skinny just the year before and just used his old picture as the after. That is too funny, man. <laughs> I mean, why not? He just reversed him probably. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny, dude. All right. So I thought that was kind of neat, like that little intro. is like, apparently Hitchcock liked to do shit like that. Like he was a practical jokester. Mm-hmm. So he would do all these little things and then he would put in like double entendres and he would find out certain things about actors and their fears. And yeah, so he liked to do those kind of things. There's a little bit of that stuff in here. Too. He was cognizant of the fact that he was considered to be a mainstream entertainer, not even necessarily like an artist. He was only considered to be like an entertainer yeah. during most of his lifetime. Actually, like if you go into like what was going on with like film criticism at the time, that kind of explains how in his later life there was a different view of his works. But because he knew he was considered mainstream no matter what he did, he kind of played into it, which he gets a lot of criticism for having a type and casting a lot of blondes during his 50s movies. But he specifically made all of his blonde characters not dumb blondes, but smart blondes, but threw them in because that's what was popular. Makes sense. I mean, like, so because of the popularity of his films and his body of work, why wouldn't you? I mean, it's just, it's that more appealing. Yeah, he, it seemed like he was always willing to at least nod to what was popular at the time. I mean, I don't think he was necessarily changing giant bits of his work yeah. to reflect what was popular, but he was like, no, I know, like, where my <laughs> shit's going to get played. Like, yeah. so let's nod to her advertising c- campaign. People are going to be like, oh, that's awesome. That's going to be an Easter egg. Yeah. And he in does 1963. Yeah. He was known for doing stuff like mm-hmm. that, throwing in Easter eggs, which is really cool. But another cool thing, this is kind of outside of the film itself, but he was also known for not liking to shoot on location. He would much had rather shoot on set. So there's a lot of stuff in this film, too. Because of that, he would do both. And there was a technique that I wanted to talk about a little bit later on that he uses to get away with a lot of that stuff. Cool. Wolf Whistle starts it off. That's where we were at. <laughs> yeah. Which is cool. Like I said, it's, it's that Easter eggs, that nod to people should know her because of advertisements. Now she's the quote unquote the new Grace Kelly of his films. As we get into talking about this first half of the movie, this sort of reminds me of the fact that this is one of those movies that I kind of wish that I would have gotten to watch when it was released, like oh, in the time awesome. period yeah. without other things to judge it against, other than what you know, was contemporary to this at the time. Because I can't imagine what the tone shift must have done. Because the first half of this movie isn't the second half no, of this movie. No, it's totally not. I mean, this might as well be Mandy for how different the first half of this movie is yeah. from the second half of this movie. You're absolutely The right. entire first half of this movie is a fucking romantic comedy. It really is. It is kind of a, a low-key rom-com. Absolutely, yeah. 
where the only criticism I have of it, I thought it was a really cute rom-com. The only criticism yeah. I have is that Rod's character is a little bit of a dick yeah. for seemingly no reason. <laughs> However, you would probably get to those reasons if this movie didn't turn Play into a horror yeah, halfway through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those damn There's birds. a really interesting story here that never happens never because yeah. birds happen halfway through. Yeah. In a weird way, there is a little bit of a resolve because of that chemistry Mm-hmm. teasing but it never gets flushed out no and the story that was being set up oh yeah never gets to finish because a whole different storyline is getting set up yeah it's kind of funny <laughs> it took the wrong turn in the <laughs> i'm glad they did because it would have been a romantic comedy through none that's the thing it probably would have been a really brilliant romantic comedy yeah we just wouldn't be talking about it on this show <laughs> no we wouldn't <laughs> No, but it's good. I Like I said, I like all of that stuff because it's very clever. It's building this false impression of your mind of what we're supposed to expect till it gets turned on its head. And the neat thing, too, about that sequence when it finally does get turned on its head, I think upon my initial impression of watching the film, too, is like, okay, this is where shit kind of starts to kick off. Even though he's kind of alluding to a lot of the things, like at the very beginning of the film, there is a crowd of birds kind of flocking a little bit so i did write a note about that the very end of the movie there's some radio chatter that indicates that it hasn't spread outside bodega bay yet but that seemed to set up that when birds go nuts they're going nuts everywhere what do you think i totally agree with that i'll make it's just an isolated case because they even allude to it that it's happened before in a different town what the year prior or something like that yeah so it's not an isolated case i kind of like that too it, there's enough ambiguity in this film where you really don't have a wrong opinion either way. It's just how much you want to read into it. I definitely like the idea a little bit more of birds everywhere going nuts. Likewise. But I, I do feel that in certain areas, no matter how many birds you got, it's not going to be as much of a problem. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. They uh, were kind of out in the sticks for California anyway. Yeah, I mean, they were north of San Francisco at 60 miles or so. Yeah. Which is kind of neat. I talked to one of our co-workers... And I was mentioning, you know, what we did last week and what we have planned for this week. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know Bodega Bay. He's like, uh, go surfing up there all the time. <laughs> it's like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so you know, if you know who Nate is, mm, okay, yeah. he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, He's like, I've been up there. That's where they film the birds. It's like, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, that's Wow. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so he's familiar. So, I mean, Bodega Bay is a real place. But, like, I think if you get back to San Fran proper oh, and man. the birds are going nuts, even if it's a fucking million birds going nuts... I don't think it's going to be as big of a problem as it was out in Bodega Bay. Yeah, you know what you're I mean? right, because you're a little bit more isolated. It's a little bit more, well, it's less populated, so it has a bigger impact. Okay, well, okay. Let's just get into this right now, because eventually one of us was going to ask it. Okay. You versus birds. How do you think this ends up going? Oh, man. All right. I think I have a little bit of an advantage, and the reason I say that is because I actually grew up with birds in the household. My uncle, who actually was a big mm-hmm. fan of Hitchcock and the reason why I watched all that stuff growing up, is he had parrots and cockatiels and cockatoos. So I feel Did like... Did he add foul mouth minor birds? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that would have been fucking dope. No puns. But we did have a parrot. It was an Amazon redhead, for mm-hmm. those who are familiar, that did talk. And <laughs> the funny thing is, this is this shows you the time period I grew up in. Is his name wound up being Hey Dude because of a show I grew up watching? Hey Dude. Yeah, so he knew how to say it. We would say Hey Dude, and he would repeat it back. And 
probably At least he be... didn't end up as Camp Onawana. No. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. I was thinking because of that, not that maybe in, in the numbers game in the long run, if you're getting attacked by birds, man, good luck. Unless you got something to defend yourself with. But I'd like to think that I'd have a little bit of advantage, but I don't know how much. I mean, that's the thing I was thinking, like, numbers wise, the amount of birds that were attacking care, these you people. Already, you're getting fucked like, up. Like, yeah, I'm getting fucked up. I'm gonna get <laughs> You're getting I, bit and there's yeah. not a whole lot you can do about it. Yeah, shit's gonna happen to me. It's kinda but like these. <laughs> I'm also guessing that I'm gonna end up with a lot of dead bird bodies around me before they end up taking me down. Jesus, I know, right? Like those bones are hollow. Like I'm taking down some fucking birds before they take me down. Yeah, there's gonna be a lot of birds getting fucked up too but <laughs> but yeah numbers wise number no. i mean yeah when you're talking about the numbers that they were attacking i'm like i'm not gonna try to pretend i'm, I'm the toughest fucking man in the <laughs> no, world or dude. anything like they're gonna take me down eventually yeah but i do think i'm gonna end up with a lot more dead birds around me than anybody in this film was ending up with around them especially the kids <laughs> <laughs> and if you give me a chance to get to like a bat beforehand or yeah, something yeah. which nobody was arming themselves uh-uh. nobody was even like putting on goggles no 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 there was no like mechanisms in this at all <laughs> there's a lot of swatting and running it doesn't really help the reason i said it, it reminds me of bees a little bit is because i've had that battle and it, i got my ass kicked i think bees would kick my ass worse than birds oh yeah no doubt or at least quicker they like, don't fuck around bees aren't big enough for me to like push them away one by <laughs> one so get that it's like I, I feel like i have a better chance with birds <laughs> i absolutely feel like i have a better chance against birds <laughs> Yeah, uh, some birds are getting fucked up. Unless like the first group that descends on me is all like hawks or something. Yeah, then I'm then birds I might be prey. fucked right from the get go. Yeah, I mean we're talking about like, sparrows. but they had like, they were starting <laughs> off with seagulls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like those crow, those crows seagulls. are gonna fuck your ass up a bit. Yeah. I mean this not like the seagulls aren't, but you have a better chance. If it's just the seagulls coming at me, I'm killing some fucking gulls. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of where the film, too, starts to really kick off is when she goes out to drop off those lovebirds and he finds out it's her and then that damn goal swoops down and hits her in the fucking head. She talked about that, like how they filmed that sequence. It's mm-hmm. really cool. She said they were in the studio and they said that one of the trainers had the bird up in the rafters and they used like this tube to kind of push him down. She said that the person who was her hairstylist, like, just really got her hair nice and tight with hairspray. She said it almost felt like a freaking helmet. Except for there was one strand of her hair that was loose. And what they did is they ran a cable up through her neck to that piece. Mm-hmm. And said as the bird was swooping down, they blew air over the top and made the, her hair come down. Okay. And she said, yeah, they were pumping like a little bit of blood as well to get that effect going off. They did some really cool stuff back then. But that's where it starts to turn on its head, the film. It goes from that rom-com to like, we got a problem here with some of these damn goals, man. What's going on? I do want to say that right before it gets to that part when she's bringing the lovebirds out there and she has them in the car... That, oh, that part where both the little sway <laughs> when they're funny. leaning into the turns, I thought that was like one of the cutest things I've seen it on is. film. That was adorable. The lovebirds it's just really like... It's really funny. Yeah, they're swaying with the car the way she's yeah. driving. That, she was hauling some ass too. Yeah, she was. That Aston Martin is a dope fucking car by the way too. Love to have it. Hate to see what the price is. <laughs> yeah, but even the scenes that he's setting up, it's very picturesque too. Oh yeah, totally taking advantage of some of that no-cal oh, scenery. So pretty. The whole movie sort of has little moments where 
he just sort of pulls out and does that a little bit. He really does. And it's kind of neat, too, because some of it is matte design as well. <laughs> like, they're taking advantage, like, sort of that picturesque element of bodega back in the 60s. Even, like, the interstate, the way it was built, too, was like, ooh, it's kind of sketchy because there's no rails out here. So people, I don't know if they were more cautious or they didn't give a fuck. <laughs> okay, she drops off the lovebirds. All that starts to happen. She's in. She's with the family. Lydia. Kathy? Yeah, Kathy, the sister. Did it bug you as much as it bugged me of Mitch calling his mom dear and darling? <laughs> I was thinking that, too. It's like, he called his sister honey. I mean, I don't know if there's anything wrong with it, but it's just the terminology. Darling was weird. Yeah. Dear, I, I can kind of see. Darling was weird. I've never, ever called my mom either of those things. And see, that's the thing. Dear, I think you can sort of get away with, like, mommy dearest, just sort of shortened down yeah you know what i mean i can understand that yeah but darling darling yeah no uh. Ooh, yeah that one was like are we about to go psycho in this motherfucker i know right are we get inside hitchcock what are you he doing does have an attic <laughs> hitchcock what are you doing yeah i know right he's paying a little too much homage and even though i knew what this movie was about yeah. and i'd seen it before like, coming back through it again... Picking up on these things. Ten years later, yeah. with a critical eye when I was paying attention, I still almost started being like, this is making for a really weird atmosphere. This Very family, close. there's something... Very close. Oh, my God. Kathy, her automatic insistence <laughs> towards Tippy just reminded me, the little sister of the chick that Nick starts seeing in the second season of Big Mouth. Oh. oh it just reminded oh, me yeah. that, sleep over. <laughs> Sleep over. That's funny. <laughs> I think your sister wants a sleepover. Yeah. Sleep over. Sleep over. <laughs> yeah, she was all about it, dude. She was all about it. Yeah. Kathy immediately was just like, you have to come to my party. Yeah. She was like, Do you not like us? We have a room. <laughs> yeah, I've got a party She immediately tomorrow. was like, Do you not like us? <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? You just brought me lovebirds. Do you now not like us? <laughs> It's You're like, coming to my party. <laughs> so some of the townspeople are kind of interesting. There's a bit a little bit later on in the film with the woman who has the kids at the diner. And there's a sequence that happens after all the carnage happens. And it was an actual like slap. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So listening to some of the interview that Teppy Hedren was talking about, she said that she got with that actress and was like, you know, let's practice some of these fake slaps. And she's like, no, I want you to really slap me. Because then my reaction will be authentic. And Tippy was like, I had never slapped anybody up to that point. <laughs> and I just went for it. <laughs> yeah, so you get to see a re slap reaction. Hey, it worked. That was and, a good reaction. Unless you did, because that one was wigging out way too much. Yeah. There's things I want to talk about about I, that entire scene. Yeah, I was kind of curious, too, like how much of what she was saying was going to get played out, too. Or how much credence it had. Since we're in the diner, there's kind of two parts to that diner scene. There's the before, mm -hmm. and then shit goes off with the, like, the fire and the exactly. explosion and all that shit. And then there's the after. That before, my first note is that that diner scene is goddamn infuriating. <laughs> Almost um, all the people are insufferable yeah. and super dumb. Percent. Ornithologist, I wanted to punch her <laughs> so hard. She was a know-it-all. And my first time through, that was my first thought. I made sure to write it down, even though I didn't take my notes till the second time through. But yeah, likewise. I was just like, this scene is fucking infuriating. Like, for the most part, most of them, not all of them, right. are being excessively dumb. All the dumb. 
Yeah. Just none of the smart. Just, like disregarding everything that Melanie's has to say about these birds. The second time through, that scene might be what makes this movie so genius. All of the ways that they're expressing their viewpoints in that scene, you can just swap out birds with almost any political hot point. Yeah, I totally agree. Everything about it's insanely just broad and shows these different facets of the way people think about things and the way that they... they That's a good point. Preconceived notions and... Pre, yeah, not just yeah. like... Yeah, the way that they'll either buy into preconceived notions or just not be willing to go all the way on something even yeah. though they're noticing what's happening. The captain might be one of my favorite characters because he at least was one of the people in the diner who was willing to be like, shit, no, this is happening. You have to listen to her on that. Yeah. I just don't know what the fuck's causing it. And in his case, he can only present his case, not mm-hmm. necessarily hers. He's like, yeah, I mean, I did have fish, but they're still attacking. But so many of them are just like, especially the ornithologist. Yeah. They don't do that. No, nonsense. And it's just overall, the tone is pretty dismissive. It really is. You're right. You're absolutely right. Maybe not 100% from every character. It's funny how... But, but that's why the scene works so well. Yeah. is because it's showing all those different sides to it. And I was going to say is it didn't take too long to have that reversal from what you were saying. Those two different scenes, although they happened within just a few minutes of each other, shit went off real quick. <laughs> and they all had to face the reality of what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Not just these hypotheticals and what they could mean when something was actually happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right before their eyes, which is really neat. Yeah, it just flipped everything on its head. But as far as that turning point, the crazy shit going on outside, one shot killer bird. I know, dude. Got him. <laughs> what the dude fuck? up. Dude, <laughs> was that dude I... drunk before he pulled into the station? <laughs> that one scene made me wish for a remake for one reason. Because you know if they were to remake this movie, first off, if somebody were to have the gall to remake this movie, <laughs> oh my gosh, I know, right? They would have to have some big nuts because they're going to get just tore apart on the internet for having the gall to do it. But second off, as long as they were a fan, you know that this scene would happen. They would almost completely recreate that, <laughs> except you would see the fucking claw just like oh, rip dude, across yeah. dude's neck and just one shot him oh yeah yeah ripped his fucking throat out that would be the coolest just because you know all the rest of them would be just like these harried like yeah "Ah, shit's pecking at you and maybe making you feel the claustrophobia you're right but you'd have that one alpha bird that comes in and fucks him up kickstart that shit (laughs) and it would be just a cool just badass you're like oh oh he just got fucked up (laughs) it would make that scene make more sense (laughs) in hindsight because I'm like, yeah, that dude went down, like, super quick. He got fucked up real quick, like. And then the other dude, <laughs> all right. So we know the guy blew up, right, yeah. smoking a cigarette. Now, the thing that was funny to me the second time through that, mm-hmm. not that that scene it's funny, it's the well, way. That scene's a little funny. He's I mean, a bit comical and over the top with all of his motions and what he's doing. The thing that got me, <laughs> the thing that got me is because <laughs> Melanie, Tippi Hedren's character, and some of the other people that are in the diner are watching it from that window. And it's the cut, like the way that they chose to edit that sequence of her reactions. Like, oh, yeah. They're just kind Where of cut like, in. Yeah, yeah. It's very stilted. But it's like, that's what they were going for, like these reaction shots. But seeing it and knowing how that stuff gets put together, it's like, man, that is fucking funny. I mean, it's effective, but it's like, man, damn, that kind of looks ugh, a little rough. 
and you get the afterwards with the ornithologist not even willing to turn around all the way and look at her she's ashamed they're evil i mean yeah well, see, that's kind of what I was getting to. Is I didn't know how much they were going to play into that. Like that woman kind of has some validity in what she's saying because she didn't really kick off until Tippy got there. Mm-hmm. So it would make sense for maybe for her logic that she's putting two and two together, but it didn't play out that way. So the dumbness, though, at the beginning and just the oblivious nature of people in the beginning of the diner scene, also reminded me of a few scenes before with the cop. Uh, yeah now that's another scene where the first time through i was like are you fucking kidding me like just listen to them like they're bringing up multiple things that are going on she got fucking attacked like quit being so fucking dismissive second time through i did ask myself what the fuck's he gonna do yeah exactly i go arresting all these birds okay so a flock of birds came down your chimney and attacked you guys what the fuck do you guys want me to do i know right i'm not pest control or i don't you know i don't know you want me to just go start sniping random birds like (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know right he he offered to try to help like clean up so i mean yeah i mean he was still being a dick about everything like i'm not trying to give him a free pass but i did start sitting there thinking for a second like Okay, he's being I mean, a dick, right, but then though. I'm like, what? Well, yeah, what's, what's he supposed to do about it? That's more like for animal control and wildlife and stuff like that. That's their department. Even then, what are they going to do about flocks of birds? Oh, I don't know, dude. Going down people's chimneys seemingly at random and attacking them. I know, that's another thing, too. It's like, that was super random. I like the way it played out, but it's like, god damn, I'm glad I don't own a chimney right now. Also, during the scene with that dumb cop, though, I think one of the best performances acting-wise in the movies given, and Miss Daisy is starting in on her breakdown that sort of happens through the movie as she's trying to clean up and sort of... You just see these emotions go across her face as she's trying to set things right and realizing that it's impossible just from the amount of damage that's been done. Oh, yeah, it's never going to be right again. Yeah, you're right. You can see that, too, and Tippy's character starts to realize some of that, too. Like, she's in a bad place right now with all this shit going on. So yeah, Jessica Tandy does a really good job, man. She really does. That's another thing that lends its hand in this film, too. It's because of that lack of musical score in this. There are a lot of scenes, too, where it's very quiet. There's not a lot mm-hmm. of dialogue spoken. And what he's trying to do is convey like these movements that keep you in it just enough to where you know what's going on without having to be told what the hell's going on through dialogue. He says there's a point. In filmmaking, too, with audiences, he knows, like, you have to do just so much to keep them enthralled with the story by those movements to where if you deviate any, they'll lose attention. Mm-hmm. And that's when he starts pulling you back in with dialogue and all this other stuff. But it's now, it's super clever in this film. There are a lot of the points in this movie you can kind of tune out. I mean, yeah. I mean, <sighs> I love you, Hitchcock, but... It's a long movie. It's a long movie. And the first half is kind of a rom-com. There's a lot of points in this movie you can kind of tune out. But it's true, he does use a lot of those devices to try to pull you back in. Exactly. Even in dialogue scenes, it's like, you're not really missing a whole lot. It's just giving you a little bit more background into the characters. Like, for instance, Annie, her character. I mean, you could literally remove her character from the film and it wouldn't miss a beat. But she's a strong actress. She wanted to be Melanie. 
She is so good in this movie. Really good. She actually, her character was written in to be younger because they had an older woman in mind as Mm. the headmistress of the school. But because she was such a good actress, like Hitchcock wrote her in. Kills. Her and Miss Daisy might do the best acting in this movie. I would say probably at that point in all of their respective careers, no doubt. One of the other things I'm glad you brought her up is because I pointed out two parts of this movie where people are acting really dumb. Consistently, her and Melanie are trying to act smart throughout this entire they movie. They really are. I think to me that really proved that point was in the school sequence when they're trying to get those kids out. Oh, I loved the way when she sort of realized what was going on outside, how she just had that moment where she took just a second and she's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. She processed it and then went right into using her already given role as a school teacher to keep everything calm and orderly and get them the fuck out. Exactly. And it was neat, too, because she used a process that not necessarily for that situation, but it plays a role in other situations where... These kids were familiar with it. It's like, we can't now. We don't fucking run. (laughs) And those kids got fucked up. (laughs) Something cool about that sequence, this is what I wanted to talk about since we're kind of in this little bit, is you can notice it as they're running down the street, how the birds are, some of it's mechanical, some of it's real birds, etc. Now, this is where that technique I was wanting to talk about with the guy from Disney. Uh, The guy from Disney is... His name is Ub Ervix, and he worked for Disney, like I said. He was known for using this process. It's called the sodium vapor, and it's referring to the lighting, actually. It gives it this yellow glow, as opposed to because they're using blue screen, where you get some of this weird blue fuzz. You can see it mm-hmm. leaching out. So what they do, and this is kind of cool, is they get an establishing shot of whatever the, the background's going to be. Right. And they use the silhouette of those characters, right, to go against it. And so when they're in the studio, they're using those two different lights. You're getting the white light onto the characters to give them that foreground lighting. And they're still using the vapor in the Mm. background. So that way, for the background, the yellow seeps in more. It gives you more of that coloration. And you want more of a stronger presence with the white lighting in the foreground. And it was big for Disney at that time. They were the only ones in, apparently, in the film industry that were doing that. Oh, shit. So Hitchcock knew that. He knew that the technology at the time, because the way that the birds were flapping, it's just too much distortion going on. time period-wise, Disney would have been doing that for, what, like Mary Poppins? Probably stuff like that. I don't know, like, the big names, but they were using it. (laughs) Probably, man. Anything that had to do with matting and using blue screen at that time period i would imagine so yeah they were the leaders they were the only ones really that had that chitty chitty bang bang chitty chitty bang bang i love you chitty chitty bang bang (laughs) but yeah dude that was really cool it's like it kept those colors from leaching it still made things fluid in the way that was filmed i mean looking on it now i mean you you can tell what the fuck they were doing but i still thought i was like that is really cool they actually had to go to disney because this is universal and hire that guy out as a consultant because he was the shit back then at that. He like was credited with over 300-something visual effects on this film because of that. So yeah, that was another technology at that time period where it could have been a lot worse. He said those birds flapping on screen, would just it looked like shit if they kept that <laughs> other lighting process oh, effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a little bit of trivia there. Oh, and another thing I was going to say too is when they brought those kids back into the studio, they had everybody on treadmills. 
Oh. And it took a while to film because those oh, kids yeah. weren't coordinated. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, Tippy. Oh, she made mention of that too. She's like, when they brought us back in, she's like, we got a really good workout <laughs> because of that. I want to just jump into Annie and Tippy not being done. I'm just going to mix up all yeah, the names. That's all, yeah, I'm okay with that. Everyone knows who I'm talking about. Annie and Melanie being not dumb. I super enjoyed. It actually almost made me laugh when Tippy pointed out that there's a full moon in the obvious, like, lit-up map shot behind them. Yeah. Because there's a lot of movies to this day that will have a night that that's that bright, and they'll just use the excuse, it's dark out. I know, what the fuck, man? It's like, no, it's a full moon out. Like, no, you can see shit back there, just because it's dark out. Look, you can see. You can see. I liked how that was actually just, like, called out in this movie. Like... No, I mean, it's dark, yeah, yeah, but it's light enough that you can see shit. There's a lot of movies, especially horror movies, <laughs> where nighttime is just nighttime. It's yeah, it's like a vacuum dark. in space. It's, yeah. yeah, regardless of how much lighting you have outside. You're right. It's not one of those techniques that he's known for. It's like pointing out the obvious. The fucking eyes gouged out was dope. I just wanted oh, to Oh, that was that good. That was I was like, thing. what I was the like, fuck, Hitchcock? I really wasn't expecting that. But that was that moment in the film, too, where Jessica Tandy's character, like, mm-hmm. that was kind of a breaking point, too, for her, too. Like, this shit was becoming a reality. She's already lost her husband a few years prior. This is probably somebody that she's friends with, that character, and that's just too much to deal with. It's starting to hit home, especially when she saw those broken cups hanging up. She knew what was going on, but that was good. Even though it might be the most iconic scene from this movie, and I knew it was coming up for minutes leading into it, just waiting on it. Mm-hmm. The shot where it's revealed just how many crows have settled in behind her. Oh, man. Still chilling. It is. I like how it's... Weirdly, like, absolutely chilling. Yeah. How fast it happened, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, just enough time for her to light a cigarette. (laughs) That lets you know that there's some real shit going on. Like, this is starting to get fucky. Man, all the Annie shit. All the exposition that they get back and forth. It's so neat. I honestly, I'm going to say it again, I kind of wish that I could see that rom-com where... I mean, you could. It's, yeah. But where it's like Tippi Hedren and Rod Taylor getting together kind of with the help of one of his old exes. Yeah. And them all getting to see each other even for their flaws. Because that's kind of what it seemed like it was getting set up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were... And there's a lot of weird emotional interchange and her being very open about the fact that she's still into him. But that's kind of what you were talking about earlier, too, with some of the things that Hitchcock either coined or implemented. Is where you're getting a lot of that exposition. You're getting a lot of this background that doesn't really play itself out at all. It's just something to keep the movie going forward and make you a little bit more sympathetic towards these characters. They're more humanized. But I think it's all that setup. It might not be played out and paid off for the movie that it felt like it was originally setting up. I think the most heart-wrenching part of this movie for me was seeing her body laid oh, out man, over those yeah. steps. Like, fuck. And it's not even like, we just came off watching a couple really fucked up movies. <laughs> yeah, We're about we to watch another fucked up movie. <laughs> We're about to watch multiple fucked up movies coming up because there's at least one movie that we're getting to sometime soon that's also super fucked up. Oh my god, yeah. But that was heartbreaking. Just her just strewn across the steps. Yeah. Almost just like a lifeless doll. And the fact that Melanie, she was sympathetic, of course, she felt the impact of that death, even though they weren't like close friends, they bonded 
she knew that Mitch and her had a background, but she still was like, had enough respect and dignity for her, which is like, don't leave her out like that, man. Mm -hmm. You know, don't leave her out. So I, I was like, that's something that I want to, I don't know how much percentage of the time, but for the most part, probably would have been ignored. It's like they had enough consideration to be respectful. The way this movie ends up playing out, I couldn't help but think of it. Kind of feels like a zombie movie. Yeah, it's very apocalyptic feeling. And I mean, I guess we could just go back to sort of the diner scene, how they set up, how it can kind of be anything. Yeah. But this weird, just unstoppable force of nature moving in that's alive and killing you, but still just as indifferent as the rest of nature. Yeah, for the most part. How can a bird have a personal vendetta? Yeah. <laughs> Especially in numbers like that. Well, crows can. Yeah, I guess. I, I'd, like to th I'd like to think that they were running the shit, but anyway. Uh <laughs> And so a lot of the back half of this movie just sort of plays out like that, where there are survivors in a house surviving against these waves of attacks, basically. And then that brings me to, I mean, I really like this movie, but especially after watching it with a critical eye, I guess there's one huge criticism, not huge, there's one main criticism I would have of this movie. Tippy's break at the end never seems set up through the rest of the movie at all yeah no. it seems like that break should have happened to lydia oh yeah 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 lydia's breaking her. down is set up throughout the entire movie yeah exactly and you get to learn the parts of her that started to break even before this movie started through some of the emotional exposition that yeah. she has with tippy's character precisely yeah i see what you mean that's a good point too i wonder how much he's projecting that stuff onto melanie mm-hmm to where at the end, where Lydia becomes like a mother figure to her in the car on the ride out. So, you know, how much they were looking into that, whether it was Hitchcock himself or Evan Hunter, whoever. Yeah, it's kind of neat to dissect that a little bit further. Ultimately, the outcome is that if you start thinking about the fact that it's Tippy that breaks, I think that that makes this movie have the bleakest of its possible outcomes. Because she was the savvy, strong yeah, yeah. one of the group, whereas everyone else was having shit happen. That's a good point. Lydia was already in the middle of dealing with... She was still dealing with a grief from... Yeah, the death of her husband. From the death of yeah. her husband. Abandonment, stuff like that. Yeah, so she was having issues. The daughter just had her trusted school teacher yeah. damn near killed in front of her who sacrificed herself yeah, for her. Her birthday was ruined because of these Who was also birds. a former lover of her brother, her brother yeah. who also just had to go bury her after she was putting up his new possible lover. And you get a hugely emotional scene where you realize just how much Miss Daisy relies on Mitch and... It's set up extremely <laughs> early in the movie yeah. that he is very much a man of order and law, and all of that has broken down. Yeah, it's chaotic. And then they lose the person who's best dealing with chaos. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. But I mean, you're right. I mean, those are clever devices. It's stuff that you really don't anticipate, you know? The one thing, too, that it's not funny, but I thought it was a funny moment is after she gets taken out of the room when she's getting attacked. And there's a little bit of a sequence where she's coming back too. And she's putting out that fight mm -hmm. with her hands. I was like, that's actually, that's really good. But it's kind of funny. <laughs> you know, because not too long after that, probably shouldn't be saying it like this, but I was thinking, 
for comedy's sake, I was like, man, he is pulling a Bill Cosby on her right now with that Brandy. <laughs> she's just like, she's in this weird emotional, like, fog. Mm-hmm. And he's like, here, have some Brandy. <laughs> like, oh, my God. <laughs> long story short, though, it's effective because not long after that, too, when she's going out of the house, she's like, she has the last spoken lines. I'm like, well, some of the last spoken lines. She's like, no, no. Yeah. Like, oh, shit. So, yeah, it's, it is kind of a weird thing to put on her. Like, she's the one who breaks. But I can kind of see it a little bit, too. She might be savvy in the respect that she's covering up some of her vulnerabilities and insecurities. Mm-hmm. And that could be a breaking point. She gets fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. It's not the biggest critique. No, but I, no, I did but I feel like Lydia was set up far more oh, yeah. Char- for that kind of emotional break. I totally agree with you. There's characters who are better suited to have that breakdown than... But if Lydia has that break, though, I also think it's a far more hopeful ending. Good point. Because you still have the family able to rely on Tippy. And Tippy, yeah. And Mitch working together. As a couple. Yeah, Mm -hmm. whereas now you've got another vulnerable lady in in this circumstance. And it's somebody that you uh, rely on for strength. I like the open-endedness, too, compared to, from what I understand, De Maurier, her version of it, where it's found out or it's discovered that the birds themselves were fluctuating on the ebbs and tides which they hint at a little bit especially towards the end but yeah it's never really fully developed or played out and it's only yeah it's only just kind of briefly mentioned but because this is so open-ended you don't know where it started you don't know how it's going to end you kind of feel like you're thrown in the middle of this bigger picture but i like that i mean it's super effective it's clever for the most part you're not really thinking the bigger picture you know without looking at it critically but then it makes you wonder too like maybe that was just like all he was really going for yeah the ending reminded me a lot of Zack snyder dawn of the dead ending yeah yeah good point man no i understand that there was supposed to be an alternate ending as well that never really got oh yeah i read about that which i would have loved where they get back to san francisco and as they're pulling up on the city they see the golden gate bridge and it's just full of fucking birds yeah now here's something that's cool about that blu-ray is that they actually have the script like written out and you know all these little edits in there and they even have the storyboard drawn out for it it was never filmed that sequence oh okay but it does exist in at least screenplay form so i thought that was really cool some of the things Aside from the film, I want to talk about, because you talked about, you brought it up earlier with Roar. Now, Tippy and her husband at the time, Noel Marshall, I don't know how, what circumstances brought her and William Peter Blatty together, but they became friends, mm-hmm. and he actually gave her an unpublished copy of The Exorcist, and she became so enthralled by the story, she actually like woke up Noel one night, she's like, you need to represent him to get this published and perhaps get this adapted to the film. And so he did. He agreed to it. So he became executive producer on the film. She actually took the photo of Blatty on the original print of The Exorcist when it was published for the back jacket. Now this is where it gets fucked. So Noel and Blatty agreed in principle that Noel was supposed to get like 15% of the profits from the movie. But Blatty backed out. Like, he's like, we only agreed to it in terms. We never signed it. And that caused a rift between all three of them. So Noel and Tippy apparently at the time were struggling financially. And they were trying to help fund that movie you were talking about, Roar. 
that would have helped with the funding of it? I think that movie ended up being like three or four years in production for multiple reasons, and funding was one of those reasons. This would have helped fund that project, right? And subsequently, they divorced, and there was a time where Blatty ran back into Tippy at some event. I think it was for The Exorcist or something a little bit later on in his career. And she pretty much just blew him off. She's like, you know, she didn't say fuck you directly, but that's pretty much what happened. Like, Now, the thing, too, is I was reading a little bit more about her personal history, whether it was with directors or, in this case, it could have been writers, directors. If she had a friendship, she liked to name her animals after these people. Oh, yeah, so she had, I think she had a tiger or a cub or something that was named Billy because of William Peter Blatty. Oh, wow. She had, I think, another lion or another animal that was named like Connery because of Sean Connery. Connery and Marnie. Yeah. yeah. So she was known to do that. Johnny Depp, she never starred or anything like that, but she was so enamored by him. Mm-hmm. She named one of her pets, I think, Depp or something like that. But well, because what? of Melanie Griffith, Antonio Banderas actually was in a few movies with Johnny Depp. So she kind of knew him indirectly because of Antonio. Was this the movie where Connery was offered, was offered the Taylor role? Yeah. But he basically couldn't do it because of his commitments to James Bond? I think so. And, and he was always pissed about that. Yeah. And I mean, that's why he, that's why he ended up yeah. doing Marnie. I think, who was it? Cary Grant was also offered the role. But because he was too big, big. of a star, Hitchcock was like, no, no, no. My name and the fact that it's a single title, The Birds, mm-hmm. that's enough star power. <laughs> But yeah, there's some really, like I said, cool anecdotes because of that stuff. Ooh, should we talk about the not cool one? Let's get to it. <laughs> All right. A few more cool ones before we get into the dark All shit. Right. All right. So Mitch, who was played by Rod, the reason he was named Mitch is that the actual owner of the Tides restaurant gave Hitchcock permission to use his restaurant on a couple of conditions. One was if he named lead character after him. So that's why Mitch oh. is named Mitch, because Mitch. the owner's okay. name was Mitch Zavich. Now, Hitchcock, because of that, he also let him have a speaking part in the film. So as Tippy is getting off the boat after getting attacked by the goal, and Mitch and her are walking, there's a guy that's like, what happened, Mitch? Oh, That's yeah. the guy. That's, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, so he gave him a, a speaking part. I was like, that was pretty cool, honest promise. They said that the uh, gas station where all that chaos went down. Right. A lot of it, they filmed and they reconstructed sets at Universal and their back lots and stuff like that. They actually constructed that gas station. And then after that, they actually built a gas station in its place. Oh. And it still exists. Wow. So in the film itself, it didn't exist. It was just a part of the set. And then they built it. Yeah, and then somebody came in and built it, because probably because they knew it was going to be a landmark or a historic yeah. landmark capitalize on it yeah crazy okay so yeah some little interesting stuff like that but unless there's anything else that pops my mind oh oh we talked a little bit about veronica cartwright and you mentioned because hitchcock liked to talk about food and drink she said when she was auditioning for the part she actually was in a couple of episodes of his alfred hitchcock presents Mm -hmm. prior to this and she said she was about 11 at the time when she was you know in his office and they were talking about casting her etc she said that he found out that she was born in Bristol. She's English. But she said what he started talking about was how to cook steaks and how to remove them from the heat. And he's like, you don't want to overcook them because they'll still be cooking even though you're removing from the pan. And he talked about some of the best wine places in Bristol, like the best winemakers are from Bristol. She's like, that was cool and all, but I was 11 years old. <laughs> She's like, I don't know what any of that stuff meant. 
<laughs> yeah, so I thought that was funny. Yeah, some of that special feature stuff, like I said, is really cool. They talk about set designers and how Hitchcock, he was more fascinated with the story development in pre-production. Like, he liked all that stuff, like plotting it out, drawing it. He was known for drawing a lot of the mm -hmm. storyboards and stuff like that. He said the filming part kind of sucked because he hated going on set. He said the lighting was always fucked. He much preferred just shoot at the studios, etc. So you get to learn a little bit about that. There was a scene where somebody gave a little bit more in-depth ideas of how Hitchcock liked to use, it, not even characters, it could just be like objects in his films that give you these emotional attachments. He says, if you watch the scene where Jessica Tandy drives out to that guy who had his eyes pecked out, mm -hmm. what they did is they watered down the driveway because it's dust, right? Mm -hmm. You don't think much of it. But as she's driving there, you don't see the dust kicking up, right? He says it's very flat, you know, it's just easy drive in. You don't think much of it. It isn't until after she discovers that the guy was killed and she gets back in the truck and she's blazing off. He said what's happening is you're getting to see like the ease of her going there and then the tension afterward because that's when the dust kicks up. He says when she finally pulls in, what that car or that truck signified it was an emotional truck. There was an emotional attachment put to it. And he does that in his films. He puts these mm -hmm. these little characteristics, these devices or these props that otherwise you wouldn't give two shits less about. Right. You know, so huh. it's like that's kind of, it's clever, that's man, weird. that he was using these sweeping shots and these little devices that most people don't really even think about, mm -hmm. which shows like his genius, how much attention to detail he puts into his films and stuff like that. So... Gave me a little bit better appreciation for at least his artistic merits. But this is probably where we can interlude or segue into like some of the dark shit. Because typically along with geniuses, there comes a fine line between genius and crazy. Honestly, I had heard some stories here or there, so I didn't want to look up too much. But what I do know is that Hitchcock definitely threw real birds at Tippi Hedren and abused her to the point where she left to... She was physically and emotionally exhausted. And left the set to the hospital for a small period of time. Yeah. And it's even her double that appears in one of the scenes in the movie because she hadn't returned <laughs> from the hospital yet. Yeah, she was on doctor's orders at that point. She became so exhausted, like I said, she was hospitalized. And it shut down production for a week because really they didn't have any other scenes to shoot. That was pretty much what they had at the time. Like, that was the shoots. So from what I understand, this is from Tippy herself. So this isn't like hearsay or just speculation or, or insinuation now in those special features she not necessarily that she gloats on him or anything like that but it sounds like she's giving him some pretty good praise some high mm -hmm. praise but it wasn't until a little bit later where she's like no he was like sexually trying to advance on her and propositioned her and stuff like that from what I understand is that he wanted her to be like sexually available <laughs> And she's like, no. I mean, she was, uh -huh. She already had Melanie Griffith. I think she was in the midst of her second marriage, or like getting into her second marriage. Well, she I was mean, super she was, attractive she wasn't and but that's like, not a reason to be doing shit like that. She wasn't in this movie till what? She was like 33, something yeah. like that. She was already considered too old, old for a leading part. Yeah. Which, whatever. Holy shit. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she was a baby doll, let's put it that way. But the point being is like, he put her through a lot of shit in this film because of that, or at least it's led to believe that because yeah. she denied him, he fucked with her for the rest of this film. 
like in that phone booth sequence too, she wasn't expecting that bird to get shot into the oh, glass. Oh yeah, it was supposed to be. Well, and it was supposed to be unbreakable mechanical, glass yeah. anyway. And most of the stuff too, the birds were supposed to be mechanical, unless you know otherwise noted by handlers. Mm-hmm. And they talked. Well, she talked about it too. Is like, and I think even Rod Taylor talked about it. There were certain scenes where. Hitchcock gave them the impression that this was going to be very controlled. There might be a few live birds, but handlers are close by. But it's nothing like having a live lion running around. What the fuck? But yeah, you're right. I mean, he would get them to throw birds at them. That whole sequence in the attic. She thought they were all going to be mechanical. And they had to shoot that scene over and over and over. And it broke her down. We just talked about that. She said she had to pick out glass shards from that phone booth sequence because she wasn't expecting it, Mm -hmm. you know? She's like, yeah, I got pretty beat up on this film. And this was her first film with Hitchcock, too. They hadn't even filmed Marnie yet. Yeah. No, from what I understand, too, is because she was under contract with Hitchcock, that there were other studios that were, like, offering her all these roles, but she had to turn them down because she was already under contract. And she felt like, because of that stuff, that her career, in essence, was kind of ruined. Like, she was getting blackballed. Mm-hmm. You know, so like I said, how much you want to read into that, entirely up to you. We <laughs> we jokingly refer to like the Me Too, not that, that it's funny, but it just goes to show like how long that stuff in Hollywood's been going on. Unfortunately, it's sounds like Hitchcock was no stranger to that shit, which is sad, man. You know, it's like he was successful enough where he didn't have to do those kind of things. Not that any other reason is an excuse. There is no excuse, but... No. It's like, oh, man, that's dodgy as fuck. Because his art itself is like, it's genius. You can't help but notice it. But it's like, oh, I hate that there's a blotch on this, man. Yeah, it sucks. But, I mean, the, the other option is get rid of Hitchcock, which... That ain't happening. That ain't happening. Too much is built off of what he did, yeah. to be honest. So Exactly. So, aside from all that, it is interesting to see, like, how, like, these films, like... Psycho, The Birds, some films we'll be mentioning later, probably Vertigo and stuff like that. Like, how they're still celebrated. Like, these are landmark films, not only for us in horror, but just in cinema in general. Like, I was highly impressed at, like, how well this film is shot, you know, from all kinds of different lenses, I suppose. But, yeah, it was fun to finally get to watch it. It was fun to finally get to talk about Hitchcock. Learned a lot about this film in general. It gave me a better appreciation because hearing the title, The Birds, I'm like, what is there to be scared of with fucking birds? A lot. (laughs) In numbers. Yeah. This ain't no fucking birdemic, son. No, dude. It's like, I can see why that title, The Master of Suspense and Thriller, is attached to his name because he leads you in all these different directions and then he hits you sideways. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. I'm glad we finally got to get to this. Like we said, we'll probably get to at least Vertigo in the future, if not some others. Who knows when, because we got other shit to get to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like we're going to get to immediately, but yeah, down the road. Yeah. Love us some Hitchcock. Don't love us some Hitchcock enough to make this like Hitchcock month. We got to show Terrifier to some assholes next week. That is going to be fun. I feel like that one. If you haven't listened to the episode prior, listen to that one first. I feel like there's going to be some tap outs in this one. I think so, too. If there's not more power, then we got a second round of shit to show. That's right. I'm not going to make a move on, obviously, but we'll talk more about that in the future in the next episode. So please, everybody out there, hit subscribe so that you can listen to our next episode. Yeah, for sure. That would be awesome. You can always go to our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Up at the top, there's links of all sorts of different ways to listen to us. Down at the bottom, we're always streaming the latest episode. 
In between, there's links to the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter, all that good shit. You can always contact us through the website or by hitting us up at squirmcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Am I missing anything? No. Like If you just want to throw us some recommendations, suggestions, if you want to say hello, if you just want to uh, maybe hear us give you a shout-out, let us know either way. Like So we're always open to ideas. It's always fun to hear from you regardless so yeah i'm enjoying it this is a good way to start the new year like so we've got some really cool shit lined up for the year i'm excited dude to see what happens yeah it's gonna be a good one shit yeah terrifier next week that's gonna be awesome and then we'll figure it out past that hell yeah man i'm tyler i'm danny fried squirms out. out